Hey, this is John from pureandsimplebible.com. Thank you again for joining me. I'm grateful for your presence and grateful for your continued support. We're finishing up a four-part series on reasonable faith with Aubrey Ballard, and we've looked at some questions such as, does truth exist? Does God exist? Do miracles exist? And today we're going to be talking about the New Testament and the trustworthiness therein. I'm really excited to finish this up. I'm really grateful for your patience and for your presence as we've gone through these four episodes together. I've thought it would be helpful if maybe we broke it down into each one getting each question that is getting its own episode. So let's get started back in that conversation with Aubrey. I like the way that you end it by bringing it back to the biggest miracle of all creation, which we're presently living in today. Now, uh, that's our third question, and we now enter into the fourth question. And this one, I think, is going to be one that uh, I enjoyed our conversation the first time. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting to have it again. Um, these six E's, as you call them, that help us understand the great question, is the New Testament true, are just some fabulous pieces of information. And um, I might try to have them available on my website. If not, I hope people will at least write them down, these six E's that help answer that question. But uh, I kind of got ahead of myself, so let me ask it. Is the New Testament true? So why don't we just start with that before we jump into the six E's. Go ahead. Well, this is a very important question because we're talking about the reasonable nature of the Christian faith. And in order for Christianity to be true, then the New Testament itself has to be true. And uh, we could ask this same question about the entire Bible, and there's compelling evidence that the entire Bible is true. Um, For example, all of the books that are collected together to make up the Bible or the Scriptures uh, were written over a period of about 1,600 years. They were written in three different languages by about 40 different authors, and yet... They have one unified theme. And in short, I think that defies any sort of naturalistic explanation. And it points to the fact that there's one superintending mind behind all the scriptures. It's like Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Our focus is on the New Testament itself. And I think that's okay because if the New Testament is true, then you get the Old Testament too as a package deal. In other words, if the New Testament is true, then the Old Testament must also be true. And the reason is uh, Jesus and his apostles and inspired prophets all claimed that the Old Testament was true. Okay, so let me see if I follow that reasoning. Uh, We don't need to spend time looking at all 66 books because if we can prove the New Testament, uh, it's going to do the work for us. Right, I think that's a good starting place. I mean, it would be a valuable exercise to look at the uh, Old Testament um, in that way. But if you only have time for one, then the New Testament is enough um, to prove the whole point. Well, then let's jump into these six E's. And that's the letter E, by the way. Six E's that we're talking about uh, that help us understand that the New Testament is true. Uh, The first one that you mention is... Uh, the first E, that is, is early, early testimony. What do you mean by that? So, yeah, this is a good uh, memory device, the six E's. Um, it's not original to me. I think I 
Uh, probably first saw it in uh, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler's work. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and uh, they may have uh, compiled it from other sources th themselves. I'm not sure, but uh, early testimony is a very important point, and the idea is that most of the New Testament documents were written before A.D. 70, and that means they were written during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses uh, of the events themselves. Uh, furthermore, there is information like the information included in 1 Corinthians 15 that goes all the way back to the resurrection. Um, and it's not, as some critical scholars assume, uh, a long period of time and a slow transmission process uh, of traditions over many generations before these things were ever written down. But instead, the testimony that we have of the events in the New Testament, specifically the resurrection of, of Jesus, is all very early testimony. Maybe, I think this is a good second E, you know, talking about early testimony. We also have eyewitness testimony. So talk about that for a second. There are at least 150 eyewitness verifiable details uh, within the New Testament that establish the eyewitness position of the authors. Uh, 84 of those are in the second half of the book of Acts alone. We're talking about uh, details, travel details, names of people and places, uh, geographical details, um, and other such information. And uh, 59 in the Gospel of John alone. But what we're saying is that there are things included in the Gospels and in the uh, New Testament epistles and the historical books that could only be known by a person who was an eyewitness themselves or had access to be able to interview someone who was an eyewitness or they had a, a knowledge of the people and places that is characteristic of a person who lived at the time. And so the early testimony and the eyewitness testimony becomes evident to us when we look at the uh, biblical evidence itself. It's, again, um, a characteristic or an aspect of the scriptures that defies some sort of naturalistic explanation, or um, it rules out the fact that these books could have been written generations or centuries later, um, and then the authors just claim that they were written at the time. That's an amazing fact that there's 150 eyewitness verifiable details. And uh, I think that helps establish the answer to can the New Testament be trustworthy or, or is it true based on just that simple number alone. But that, we're just getting started, right? We've got early testimony, eyewitness testimony, and then you have mentioned something in your notes called expected testimony. How is that going to help me define the New Testament as true? So all of these things that we're talking about are not surprising at all. In fact, they're to be expected if the New Testament uh, really is true. On the other hand, if the New Testament isn't true, these things are very difficult to explain, to say the least. But specifically, when we, when we say expected testimony, that's another way of describing um, fulfilled prophecy. The idea is that there were specific detailed prophecies made um, sometimes hundreds of years before certain key events, 
And those events happened exactly as they were prophesied. And there's many examples of this, uh, general prophecies that are made in the Old Testament specifically, and then many more as well about the Messiah, about Jesus and his person and work and his suffering and all that he would accomplish. But if I had to give just one as an example, it would have to be the prophecy contained in Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah 53. Um, sometimes we call it the suffering servant prophecy. But the thing to remember about this one is that it was written over 700 years in advance of the events that it describes. And um, now I've made that assertion, and if somebody is uh, highly skeptical, then uh, for the sake of argument, um, we could say that at the very least, we know these prophecies to be a hundred years uh, before Christ because of a very important discovery, uh, and that is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was made back in the late uh, 1940s and, and 50s. Um, but those Dead Sea Scrolls contain the complete Isaiah scroll. And uh, at least at the time when I looked into this, that complete scroll was in the Shrine of the Book Museum in Jerusalem. It's 24 feet long, and people could go and they could look at it and see it for themselves. But that scroll itself, which is a, a copy of much older original copies, uh, predates Christ by over a hundred years itself. And so what we have is a document that makes very specific prophecies about the Christ. In fact, if you're, if you're like me, this is one of the places you go maybe during the Lord's Supper when you're trying to focus your mind on Christ and his sacrifice. And it might be kind of odd for somebody to think that you could go all the way back to the New Testament. But if you've ever read it before, Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, uh, through Isaiah 53, what you notice is that it's an uncanny description of the crucifixion scene. In fact, when you're reading it, it feels like you're looking at the cross itself. And so somehow Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came, was able to give this incredible picture of what would take place at his crucifixion. And he includes there many of the spiritual truths and the things that God would accomplish through the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, if the New Testament is true, if it's really from God, then this is exactly what you would expect. It's not surprising to us that Isaiah could do this. But on the other hand, if the New Testament is not true, and uh, if it was written much later, and these claims that it makes are uh, you know, bogus, if we can't verify them, then it would seem very strange, at, to say the least, that Isaiah and the other prophets, for that matter, could speak with such accuracy that many years in advance. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe a common question would be, well, you got any non-Christian sources that corroborate that? You know, so far we've talked about stuff that is biblical, and even though it is reasonable, and I think it lines up very well, it's very logical to come to this conclusion, the fact that it's early, eyewitness, it's expected when you look at prophecy. But at the end of the day, you know, people are probably going to want something to corroborate it that's uh, outside of Scripture. What, what would you offer in that regard? Well, I think, first of all, when people uh, have that question, 
there is an underlying assumption that needs to be discussed briefly, and that is that non-Christian authors would naturally be the most reliable sources because they would be the unbiased ones. Um, furthermore, it's assumed that Christian authors would have to be biased, and they might even have a good reason to lie or to fabricate certain details. But in a moment, I want to look back to that assumption, and I think that what we're going to find is that the exact opposite is true. But in answer to your question, yes, um, there are extra-biblical sources or non-Christian authors who corroborate the events in the New Testament. There are at least 10 ancient non-Christian sources uh, within 150 years of the life of Jesus. Men like Talus and Tacitus and Suetonius and Josephus. And we're not saying that each of these men corroborate every single detail in the New Testament, but they briefly mention Jesus independently of one another. And whenever you look at all that they wrote uh, and line it up, and compare it with the story in the New Testament, you find uh, a story that is congruent with what the New Testament authors wrote. You know, other ancient sources, you know, again, we don't ask if there's other sources that corroborate those documents as though they're genuine. We kind of take them at face value. It seems as though the New Testament is held to a different standard. And so I am thankful, first off, that you have mentioned there are at least 10 ancient sources or non-Christian sources within 150 years. The, the question, do you have any non-Christian sources to corroborate that? Uh, you said it kind of is implicitly saying that Christian sources are biased, so it needs some unbiased sources. And so I, uh, you said you wanted to talk about it. Let's maybe jump into it with this next one about embarrassing testimonies. This is a good place to, to bring up why, in fact, the Christian sources are reliable and based on some of the facts that they say about themselves. Well, sure. Um, if I could put it in sort of a homespun way, I hope that um, your listeners will accept this historical principle and agree that it's true. And that is that if you, you ever <clears throat> find something within a, a written work that's embarrassing to the author or authors, then it's probably true. And uh, the reason is that most right-thinking people in fact, everyone that I've ever met um, would not lie intentionally to make themselves look bad or to get in trouble. Now, sometimes people will lie to make themselves look good or to get out of trouble, but the opposite is almost never true. And when you read the New Testament, you'll find embarrassing details included about the authors and about the main characters that you would think would not be included if these uh, people were making this stuff up. Uh, a few examples would be that uh, the disciples, specifically the apostles, were often characterized as being dim-witted or slow to understand what Jesus said uh, until his 40-day uh, time period spent with him after the resurrection. There were many things that they didn't understand, and the scriptures are clear about that. Uh, they were often characterized as uncaring, like when they fell asleep uh, while Jesus was praying. Uh, in fact, they didn't bury Jesus. Instead, it was Joseph of Arimathea who did that, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
who was the ruling body that put Jesus to death. Um, and this, this brings up a side point, but a, an important point. Um, we know that Jesus was buried in a Jewish tomb because of the details included about Joseph of Arimathea. Um, and this is important because if he wasn't actually buried in that tomb, um, since the New Testament authors claimed that he was, then any of the Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus could have easily falsified their story. They could have proven that the accounts of Jesus' um, resurrection were not true because they could have gone and found the body and presented it. On the other hand, if he wasn't buried in that tomb to begin with, then they could have shown that that detail of the story was obviously false. But the Jews could not present the body of Jesus. And they couldn't falsify the story. Instead, they had to make up their own story. And they said that the disciples stole the body while the guards were asleep. Well, that's a bad explanation for probably a lot of reasons. But the two most obvious ones to me are that any Roman soldiers who fell asleep uh, on their post or who lost a prisoner who they had charge, uh, they were put to death. And... So it's very unlikely that a group of Roman soldiers would have allowed themselves to fall asleep on duty. Uh, a second reason is, is this. How in the world do you know what happened if you were actually asleep? And so this was an obvious lie that the followers of Jesus came and stole his body while the Roman guards slept. But it was repeated over and over, and uh, it was the very best that the people at the time could do, those who didn't want the word of Jesus' resurrection to get out. And uh, that's impressive when you think about the fact that these were the most powerful people in the region at the time. They were highly motivated. They had the resources of the Roman government at their disposal. They knew the location of Jesus' burial, and yet they could not falsify the Pentecost claim of his resurrection or the continuing testimony. Uh, by his followers. It's funny that there, there's so much evidence based on the Roman soldiers' false claims and the lies that's going on there, but going right along aside this, based on what you said, is is disciples who are uncaring. Uh, you know, they didn't bury Jesus. Somebody else had to. Somebody else had to give him a tomb to be put into. And it's, So kind of uh, bringing it back to examples of these writers uh, revealing some details about their own lives that are not the most flattering. You said that they first were dim-witted, they didn't understand, and second, they're uncaring. But there's a, there's, it's not it. I'm, there, there's more about these guys that's embarrassing, isn't there? Right. Uh, and In fact, Jesus specifically rebuked them in Scripture. Peter uh, was called Satan by Jesus. Get thee behind me, Satan, in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, Peter was corrected by Paul. And Paul mentions that in Galatians chapter 2. And so you would think that uh, someone as prominent as Peter, uh, someone whose eyewitness testimony was the basis for much that was written in the New Testament, would have a problem with these details being included if they weren't true. Um, he denied Christ three times. He's portrayed as a coward in that place. 
And so if you're making this stuff up, uh, sort of in collusion with one another, you would think these guys wouldn't want this negative PR to get out. You remember that when Jesus was arrested, the disciples ran away, and those details are included. And then it was the women who were the first resurrection witnesses. Now, the fact that it was all men who wrote uh, this stuff down makes me wonder what man would intentionally portray himself as cowardly and say that it was the women who were the heroes of the story, uh, much less um, at this time period when the testimony of women in a court of law was regarded as uh, less than that of a man. If these men were making this stuff up and trying to sell it to the public, so to speak, why would they say that it was uh, women who were their star witnesses? Um, you know, I, I think, Jonathan, if, if I were making up a story like this, uh, I might try to portray myself as very masculine and very heroic. I might say, you know, uh, we marched down there to that tomb and we overpowered that elite Roman guard and uh, we saw Jesus and he congratulated us on our great faith and all this kind of stuff. But instead, these disciples say, we didn't even believe. Uh, and these women went down to the tomb. And when they came back and told us, we still didn't believe. Um, and, and it just goes even further. Uh, after, of course, Jesus resurrected and he was shown to, to many people at once. In fact, when he was giving his great commission, the New Testament writers are careful to observe that even at that point, there were still some who doubted. So there are so many details included in the New Testament that are uh, really embarrassing about the authors themselves. And it stands to reason that there must be a very good reason for those details to be included. Either uh, these men included those despite the fact that they were making this up, which I think is very unlikely, or the details themselves are actually true. And since these men were inspired of the Holy Spirit, and since they were accurately recording these things to share the truth of what happened, they included these details, um, which all ultimately magnify Christ, even though it portrays the men as, themselves as um, having less than perfect character. Uh, let me sum up real quick. We have one left, a very important one, I might add, uh, but we've discussed early testimony, eyewitness testimony, expected testimony that prophecies uh, beforehand that Christ fulfilled, extra-biblical testimony, but also this embarrassing testimony, the fact that people would uh, say things that were very unflattering about themselves. And I agree with you completely. If I was writing about myself and as a character in one of these events, it would if I were to be honest, I think I probably would embellish some of the facts if I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of the entire world, which is what they end up doing. Let's talk about the, the final E in the six E's, and that is excruciating testimony. It's very compelling. Uh, maybe tell me what excruciating testimony is and why it matters. Well, the word excruciating comes from the same root word as crucifixion. And when you say those words, you can kind of hear the resemblance. And 
this brings up the point that there were many early disciples and writers of the New Testament who actually died for their testimony. Now, think about the fact that many of these people changed overnight from Jewish customs and teachings to a new faith that got them what? Beaten, tortured, and killed. And the point is, they didn't stand to gain anything from promoting this if it was a lie. But if it was true, then that explains why they would allow themselves to go through all of this. Again, remember, the Christian authors should not be presumed to have been bias. Uh, in fact, to the contrary, it was the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and then all of the subsequent suffering of his disciples that turned former doubters, uh, like his own brother James, into faithful followers and even martyrs. And so one of the reasons that Christianity enjoyed such widespread uh, growth early on and one of the, I think, valid um, pieces of testimony that it is true, even for us today, is the fact that these people um, were willing to suffer for their testimony. You know, and that's different than, than maybe people today who are members of certain extreme uh, religious groups. Someone might follow that up and say, well, well, are you saying that anybody who's willing to die for their faith must be true? And the difference between the disciples of Jesus and someone who will strap a bomb to themselves today or someone who will fly a plane into a building, uh, there are many differences. But one of those is that the, the disciples themselves were at a unique place uh, in history and geographically to ascertain whether or not their claims were true. Uh, the person today, the religious ex extremist, who uh, kills people because they think they'll receive some reward in the afterlife, uh, they are many hundreds or even thousands of years removed from the events that are at the center of their faith. And they are not able to verify the truth of those. And so I believe there are a lot of people who are sincerely mistaken about what they believe. The disciples, on the other hand, were there. They saw it with their own eyes. Uh, they knew the people who had seen it with their own eyes. And so, why would they die for something that they knew was a lie? Uh, this is summed up in a, what some people call the Lord liar lunatic argument. And, and it goes for the Lord himself, and it also works for his disciples. Uh, in other words, there are, as far as we can tell, only three possibilities when you consider the person of, of Jesus Christ. He was either the Lord, who he claimed to be, or he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. He was absolutely a crazy person. Now, in reverse order, um, you can dispose of the, the last two that we mentioned. He could not have been a lunatic um, because of the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. The things that Jesus taught, the things that he did, that are recorded for us, uh, we can read those today and see the absolute genius of Jesus and the way uh, he thought. The people of his day were amazed 
at his teaching. He wasn't a crazy person. Um, he also couldn't have been a liar because liars don't go to their death um, for something that they know is a lie. Jesus uh, died for his claims, and if he had been a liar, you would expect that he would, uh, at the very end, uh, recant all of those things he said to save his life. But instead, he willingly died on the cross. And all those facts point to um, the reality that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's the Lord. And by extension, the behavior of his closest followers, you could follow that same line of reasoning. They either knew that he was the Lord, or they would have known that he was a liar, or they would have come to realize that he was a lunatic. And yet these people gave up their lives and they experienced excruciating deaths and they experienced all manner of persecution and torture and they watched their family members and they wouldn't give it up. They maintained that their belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God was true. And so to me, that demonstrates that Jesus was real. He was really who he claimed to be and we have an accurate record of his teaching and his actions today. Well, brother, this has been just such a fantastic conversation. We've, we've got to have it a couple times now just not because of some of my own uh, mistakes on the recording process. But I'm thankful to have it, and I hope that others will consider these four questions and specifically uh, how they will increase our faith. I'm wondering if maybe you have any closing thoughts. I know in this specific recording session we've only talked about questions three and four, but Looking back on all four of these, do you, do you have anything you'd like to close out with? Well, I would just say that um, when you consider the evidence that we've presented today, um, each and every one of these points is probably contested at some level by skeptics. And so a listener shouldn't be surprised if they go and, and look this up in some other uh, resource and they find counterclaims. And that's okay, and there are answers to those counterclaims. But I believe one of the reasons that skeptics um, resist these points is because they realize the implications of them. If what we've said today is true, then the implication is that the New Testament actually is true, Jesus really is the Son of God, and we are morally responsible to God. There's something to be done. And I believe that while any one of these pieces of evidence in and of itself and by itself doesn't necessarily prove the veracity of uh, the Christian faith, that together, when you consider all of the evidence, they definitely stand up under scrutiny, and together they do prove the truthfulness of the New Testament. And so I would want the listeners to know, and I would want my friends and neighbors to know, and I would want my children to know, that Christianity is the most reasonable worldview that you can have. And that's an important foundation, and it's an important building block, because faith that the New Testament is true and that Christianity is real leads to faith in. And Jesus uh, told us that, or, or, or the Hebrew writer told us that without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so it's important for us to um, understand these 
foundational concepts and have a reasonable basis for our faith so that we can um, have the type of faith that the Bible says we must have in order to be saved. And so I hope that this will build people's trust in Almighty God and our Father, and I hope that it will um, help encourage listeners to take His Word seriously so that we can obey Him and glorify Him in our lives. Well, thank you, brother, so much for coming on, and I look forward to the next time that we can get together and do this again. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, best wishes and our prayers are with you and, and your work in Cambodia right now and for all the brethren there. Well, I want to thank Aubrey for coming back on, for being patient with me as I had some recording issues to work through, and he was such a good sport for talking with me a second time and re-recording some of that stuff. You can go to the website and find all of the info on the podcast, on videos, on study resources, absolutely free. So go there, pureandsimplebible.com. Until next time, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.